Okay, uh, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Paolo Drino. I helped to convene these events uh, in Latin American Studies here at the Institute of the Americas. And this is uh, the first event of this new academic year. And I'm uh, delighted that we have uh, Marco Escueto with us, who is going to talk about his new book, a book he has co-written with um, Stephen Palmer at the University of Windsor. Um, this is a very important milestone in the history of medicine and public health in Latin America. It's, I think, the first major synthesis of, I guess now about 30 years of research on uh, the history of medicine and public health in, in Latin America, so it's a, it's a very welcome publication. I'm going to briefly introduce Marcos and also um, Chris Babel, who will give some comments on the book, and then hand over to Marcos, and then Chris will talk for about 20 minutes towards the end, and then we'll open it up to questions and comments from, from you. Okay? Um, so, uh, Marcos Cueto is uh, well, one of the foremost, if not the foremost, historians of um, medicine in, in Latin America. He has published uh, extensively on this topic. And this book, uh, which you can purchase here next door uh, for £15, my colleague Tom Grisafi is in charge of uh, sales. Uh, so there, there are copies of the book at a discounted price. And if you don't have any cash with you, there are uh, leaflets that you can take away. And there's a code with a discount uh, on that. So you can always purchase them. So uh, the book that we are um, presenting today is Medicine and Public Health in Latin America, A History. It was published a few months ago by Cambridge University Press in its uh, new approaches to the Americas series. And this is the latest in a uh, very long list of publications that uh, Marcos has produced in um, the last 30 years or so. Um, I'm going to mention uh, some of the more recent ones. In 2007, he published Cold War Deadly Fevers, Malaria Eradication in Mexico. That same year, another book, The Value of Health, A History of the Pan American Health Organization. In 1994, Missionaries of Science, the Rockefeller Foundation in Latin America. And there are many other uh, books, articles, and book chapters that uh, I won't list here. Um, Marcos obtained his PhD from Columbia University. He was, uh, the, he, well, he is the former director of the Instituto de Estudios Peruanos and also a professor at the Cayetano Heredia University. So, though he is Peruvian, he has been living for the past few years in Brazil, in Rio, uh, where he is now a professor at the uh, Casa Osvaldo Cruz, part of the, the Fiocruz. Um, uh, university there, and he's also co-editor of uh, one of the foremost journals in the history of medicine in, in Latin America, Historia Ciencias Saúdes Manguinos. He is here in part because we both were awarded a um, British Academy grant to uh, look at Latin American studies journals in the UK and in Latin America and compare um, the experience of those journals, the best practice, and, and so forth. So 
Um, yeah, I'm delighted to uh, welcome Marcos to, to the Institute. Uh, also delighted to welcome Chris back to the Institute. Uh, Chris Abel, some of you may know him, um, was uh, at the, in the history department here at UCL for many years. He retired a few years ago, a couple of years ago, um, but is uh, uh, still very much involved with uh, both UCL and the Institute. Chris has worked extensively on the history of Latin America, particularly Colombia, and he uh, is the author of one of the earliest and still one of the most important uh, studies of the Rockefeller Foundation in uh, Latin America. So I couldn't think of a better person to comment on uh, Marco's uh, book, and it's great that we have uh, both speakers here tonight. So I'll stop there, hand over to Marcos, and then be over to you. Okay, uh, thank you very much, uh, Paul, and, and thank you for being here. Um, the idea of this book began about uh, seven years ago when Steve and I um, realized that there were a number of studies that usually emphasize nat national developments or specific disease, studies that usually were done by social historians, sometimes economic historians, or people who were influenced by Foucault, for example, but there was no uh, succinct volume that summarizes the finding of the study. So that was one of the motivations of working on this book. Uh, besides that, I think that, I, I was thinking why we wrote this book, and something that we had in common is that we had worked before with the Rockefeller Foundation, and that is one aspect of the book that I will um, explain briefly. No? We work with the materials of the Rockefeller Foundation, partially because we both study at Columbia University, and the Rockefeller Archive Center is just located outside New York City. Um, we didn't study exactly at the same time because he's younger than me, not so much younger, we almost same age, but um, we use that archive a lot. And that was the late 80s. And initially we found that a number a number of studies concentrating on the motivations of the Rockefeller Foundation for doing public health programs in Latin America. This was during the first half of the 20th century, like the Gates Foundation today, the major philanthropy in public health programs, medical education, medical research, that had a very strong interest in Latin America, and the Rockefeller Archive Center that is still, that still works, has a number of grants and conferences, and is very well organized, and researchers still use the materials from the archive center to make studies. Uh, so that is a place, if you're interested in this topic, to, to visit sometime, because it will be very productive to obtain materials. But what we found in the 80s is that many studies concentrated, as I say, in the sending side, and especially on how the Rockefeller Foundation was 
an informal branch of U.S. foreign policy, trying to impose uh, some conditions to Latin American countries. And this was these studies usually were done in the general framework of the theory of dependence that they perceive uh, Latin America as a passive recipient of all this aid, and uh, there was no contestation of what the Rockefeller officer wanted to do. So initially, we began to question this picture and found that the processes of negotiation, reception, adaptation, and sometimes rejection of the programs was interesting, was important, and should be taken into account. And that book that mentioned Paulo, Missionaries of Science, um, came out from a conference and were different papers that tried to follow that line on how people receive or adapted Rockefeller Foundation programs in Latin America occur. Something else that we found is that in some countries where they had authoritarian regimes, it was easier for the, some officers of the foundation to promote a kind of public health that was basically a mending patch a temporary solution to uh, an epidemic. And that was, an, in my opinion, under the assumption that disease control could be done without public health improvements. That is a trend that, in my opinion, you find many times during the 20th century, and that in the book appears under a new notion that we are proposing that is called the culture of survival, that public health as a tool of the state and some agencies to bring temporary solutions to problems that have to do at the end with the living condition of the people, and not as a strategy, for example, for prevention or to improve the living conditions of the population. So that idea, I think, was taken later and appears in the book in some ways. Although we don't cite exactly how, we don't follow, trace how exactly it appears later in the book. But Stephen, the, as I mentioned, is younger than me and began to publish in the 90s and later. I think he took this whole study of the Rockefeller Foundation to a new level. And and that also is, is in the book. The new level, by the new level, I mean that he found that there was a real global circulation of uh, medical ideas and practices uh, between metropolitan centers, national governments, subnational authorities, uh, lay healers in indigenous communities, uh, immigrants, and that there was a lot of interaction between different medical systems. Uh, he has a book on the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, the fight against hookworm disease in Central America and the Caribbean, but he also has other general studies that have this more, I think, interesting approach to how different medical systems interact in Latin America of the 20th century, um, contesting the idea that medical pluralism uh, existed because Western medicine was weak. On the contrary, he argues that agency of uh, lay healers, African-American healers, 
ancient healers to create an hybrid medical system. And that has really, even though the indigenous medicine was illegal for most of the 20th century, indigenous healers were able to maintain their position to intervene in national affairs. And in some ways they have been part of this system that exists today. And that is another idea that I believe appears on, on the book. And um, just going to end telling two anecdotes that is related to this hybrid medical system. Um, a few years ago, I was approached by a student of medical anthropology from Chicago that was interested in working on a doctoral dissertation on indigenous medicine, and he asked me to find a community in the Amazon, the Peruvian Amazon, that had no contact with Western medicine or with, with anything. And my university at a time that was a, basically a medical school had some work in the frontiers between Peru and Colombia and knew about this community where people living were certain if they were Peruvians or Colombians and we were able to to have contact with, with this place and, and he went there and under the assumption that he will live there for a few years and will be accepted as a disciple of the shaman and he will learn all the rights of the shaman and he was very capable and after a year he was accepted by a shaman first of all he was very surprised at a number of drugs from Lima that he found in this community that were used by the shaman and then uh, he was initiated in the rites and ceremonies using ayahuasca, that is a hallucinogenic plant. And, and the shaman is, a, is like a guide during the whole process of this ceremony that takes place during the night. And the most important part, he told me, was in that cover a number of times when the, the shaman told well, uh, tell the rest of the people and the patients, and now we finally encounter the medical doctor from Lima, from the School of Medicine of Andrea that will cure all of our diseases. No? So th this mixture between Western medicine and indigenous medicine goes in many ways. No? Another anecdote that I found very telling is that there was a French also medical anthropologist that came to our uh, research, research Institute by Estudios Peruanos and, and we helped him to work in an indigenous community in the highlands in the Andes and he was especially interested in the content of prayers and incantations and he wrote down and he, after a while he also was accepted by the healer that had less problems than the one in the Amazon and he wrote down all the prayers and incantations and went back to Paris very happy and transcribed them, translated them into French and had a, I don't know, 500-page dissertation. And as many anthropologists decided to give back to the community what he had acquired. So he went back to the community with a copy of his dissertation and said, very proud, and said, well, here are your prayers and incantations. No? And, and the people didn't know what to do with it. The shaman didn't know what to do with it. Because at first, probably he didn't, I, I'm not certain, but 
I think he didn't read Spanish, less French. And, but immediately they gave him a use, no? The dissertation was placed on the head of the patients when the prayers were said, no? So it was a very important part of the ritual. No? And, well, that is to say, and yeah, just a final comment, there are several um, ideas in the, in the in the book, it's not all, I think it's not only a summary of the main events. Some, it has some organizing ideas. One is what I already mentioned, um, this cultural survival or public health as a mending patch. And another is this interaction with different kind of medical systems. And I would say that this is sometimes a dilemma between two ways of practicing public health that have not been completely solved in Latin America, and probably not solved in many countries of the world. A technocratic approach or a more holistic approach to public health and medicine. Um, something that is separated from the rest of the policies of a government or local governments, or something that should be part of a social reform. So this dilemma between these two approaches to global health, we tried to trace it a long time. There are chapters on pre-Columbian medicine, colonial medicine, but I must confess that our specialty was the 20th century. We knew more about the 19th century, so the final chapters probably are the ones that have more new ideas, and the first part is basically a summary of a number of studies, including very important studies, and I'm not saying it because it's here by Chris Abel. No? Okay, thank you. Well, thank, thank you. you. Um, I should like to begin by giving a warm welcome to what I think is an extremely timely book but I should also perhaps begin by introducing myself in certain ways. I came to Latin American history as a, as a young student who was very dissatisfied with the practice of British history, that there seemed to be a chasm between different kinds of historians, that economic historians of Britain hardly spoke to British historians of Britain in the same small Cambridge college. Um, what was appealing to me, in one thing was appealing to me, there are many other things, about Latin American history, when I came to this university, I came and was in the second year, or the second intake of master's students on the MA in Latin American studies that some of you may now be taking, or have taken. Um, what appealed to me in part was that you could be a generalist in Latin American history. And I've been guilty of flirting with some areas of history and taking some others uh, more seriously. But at different times I've studied political parties and religion and um, uh, social policy and very much less seriously economic history. And then I stumbled at one point on, on the history of healthcare having supervised the PhD thesis on the history of education. And I, I, I'm very pleased that I did stumble upon it. And uh, what I, 
the first point I'd make about this very ambitious book that covers a long period from conquest to the present, but puts a particular emphasis, perhaps three-quarters of the book is on the period since about 1870. The first point I'd like to make is that this is a very consciously multidisciplinary book and all the better for it. Uh, it draws upon diverse strands of historiography as well as the social sciences and the subdiscipline within medicine of public health. Um, so my presentation, uh, my short presentation, uh, is concerned with, not with a narrow notion of a cloistered subdiscipline of the history of healthcare. I believe it is fruitful to most interesting to place healthcare within uh, a very broad framework, which is what Steve and Marcos have been doing. They also indicate some areas where more research is desirable, for example, cancer, the history of cancer. And I, I will perhaps mention one or two that I think should be uh, pursued further. People thinking about PhD theses may want to move in uh, one or other of these directions, they may not. One recurring theme that is central to the book is the relationship between the public and the private sectors in healthcare. Read the documentation of the international health agencies since the Second World War, and one could be forgiven for assuming the primacy of the public health, the public sector across Latin America, and not only Cuba since '59. But the public sector has been repeatedly weakened by a set of obstacles. The low importance attached to public health and medical school curriculum, and the few hours attached to it in medical training. There's the view among many younger medics that public health work is a temporary occupation before obtaining more prestigious and remunerative employment in the private sector. And the view, among others, that job satisfaction is impossible in public health, in the public sector, given under-resourcing. There were, of course, strikes and protests in Mexico and Colombia, elsewhere, in particular in the 1960s and 70s, but at other times, um, regarding working conditions, uh, salaries, um, and... Uh, budgets in general, especially in the public hospitals. Uh, there is the attitude, too, that... It would be a good idea to read reading glasses, wouldn't it? There was the attitude, too, that the, prevent, that the preventive public sector is desirable. But an acquaintance with the knowledge of the most up-to-date surgical procedures, some of them as is importantly uh, outlined in the book, evolved in Latin America, not in Europe or, or the United States, is essential. There's the problem further weakening the public sector. The meritocratic criteria for her health work have been eroded by political clientelism, especially at regional and local levels in various countries, and economic crises that provide pretexts for, uh, for flushing out public employees. And together, discontinuities, which the book refers to, 
of pressures from international institutions with regard to specific areas of health work, and one sees how the public sector is always in various countries, I think always is not overstating, feeling besieged. Specific examples of the deliberate weakening of the public sector include bargaining by industrialists in Sao Paulo, Medellin and elsewhere in the 50s and 60s to avoid tax payments by establishing their own health, housing, recreational facilities for skilled workers, their skilled workers and families in preference to play, paying taxes for public provision. So I think there's a a constant theme here. There's also the whole debate about patent medicines and how to reduce the cost to consumers of international pharmaceutical products. A second theme, which has already been stressed by Monkos, that comes up at intervals and is very effectively handled, I think, in the book, is the, is the relationship between so-called official, I don't think you use the word, and popular medicine, black and indigenous origins. And I would like to raise one issue here, perhaps more than one. The historical value of studies in medical anthropology is perhaps limited by their frequent tendency to avoid res- raising questions of the significance of small changes of thinking and practice over time. They so often start from an assumption of stasis. Or am I mistaken? Either. Certainly in my comment. Uh, Research for the future on the politics of popular medicine could be very fruitful. How far have Kurandera's head was, whatever term one finds uh, semi-scientific acceptable, Popular midwives enjoyed, how far they enjoyed widespread local support. Uh, research might well be done at the departmental and city small town level on how far uh, these people have taken up positions in departmental assemblies and local councils, thus uh, forcing the medic politician in Congress or in government into compromises regardless of authoritarian legislation suppressing, designed to suppress unauthorized curandero activities. Suppression was of course impossible to act, to implement where physicians didn't exist, the public depended upon curanderos Indeed, even the police were clients of Coronteros. Another related query, Marcos and Steve follow the mainstream of the literature in emphasizing black and indigenous medicine and what some call syncretisms, paralleling religious syncretisms, that arise uh, from the black and indigenous medicine and their uh, connections with in overlapping with official medicine. But there's no discussion, or oh, I've missed it, of uh, 
the beliefs and practices of poor Spanish and Portuguese immigrants from the 16th century onwards, soldiers, miners, peasants, and so on. Is it really they who've been rendered invisible, not the blacks and the indigenous peoples? And have they been rendered invisible by traditions that have been breaking in recent years amongst anthropologists who require that... Uh, to do a PhD, one rite of passage is essential, and that is you learn a what used to be called primitive language. And Spanish and Portuguese just won't do. A further rec- recurring theme of much of the book has been raised again by Marcos, not surprisingly, the role of the Rockefeller Foundation from the 1910s, the Pan American Historical Organization, of course, he's written on it already and subsequent international health agencies. In one sense, the Rockefeller Foundation reflects the meetings, it is an overstatement, of US progressivism with Latin American positivism in the uh, 1910s and 20s. Now, the documents of the the Rockefeller uh, Foundation are easily, at least by me, I'm afraid, taken the face value, and I have always to step back from them. The actions, so they seem, of Rockefeller doctors were rational, scientific, systematic. They were measured uh, with care, uh, statistically. And much of the same language and methodology that sophisticated, of course, more recently, pervades the WHO documentation. Yet we have to remember that behind this documentation of of, uh, international bureaucracies, there are bureaucratic interests promoting and in decades of retrenchment, in particular the 30s, 1930s and 80s, defending their own interests. How far were the policy priorities, this is putting a question that Marcus has put, but a slightly different way, of Latin American governments distorted by foundation pressures? Where the foundation provided complementary funding, for example, for uh, vaccine laboratories or the installation of rural latrines, did these areas of policy acquire a precedence over others of perhaps equal or greater significance in which the foundation was not interested because they were not perceived as being in the vanguard of science in period? For example, maternity hospitals, not a thing where they show concern. One standard criticism of Rockefeller missionaries, always religious metaphors when they're not military ones, missions, uh, campaigns, and its protégés among Rockefeller fellows who returned to Latin America from the 1910s was leveled against what I prefer to call the informal French ascendancy in medicine until the Second World War. Much maligned, in my view, as being insufficiently scientific and experimental, and perhaps deserving considerable more analysis using French sources. It had certain merits. Some of them, many of them, are indicated in the book. 
But it was symbol- French medicine was, in a sense, symbolically defeated during the failures of French tropical medicine, to use the language of the period, and engineering in the early failed canal zone schemes. I've had at times, and it's an impression, not much more, that French trained doctors related very well to patients, that it was an important part of their training. One former such patient, this is Dives this is very anecdotal, told me that French medics understood pain well because they read poetry. And this is, uh, if you believe that all French trained medics read poetry and that uh, no US uh, trained medics read poetry well. But anyway, uh, it makes a little, it's a, it's a, it amuses me. One interesting feature of the period of French preeminence between about 1880 and 1913, do bear in mind, far less money involved than in Rockefeller preeminent in medical education, was the requirement that every medical student write a short thesis. Of those that I've sampled in Colombia, some of the most interesting were those written between the 1910s and 1940s addressing public health public hygiene and sanitation problems in small Andean hometowns of the student, students. Now, such dissertation, the better of these, such of these dissertations could play a valuable role if political resources and will were present, of course they weren't often in the uh, 1930s in particular, they could play a role as a sort of mini-plan for health improvements plus some interventions in housing and elsewhere. From sewage and drainage, water supply to cemetery management in the town. These were less prestigious, but perhaps more valuable in the long term than other dissertations that outlined and celebrated the first time when an operative procedure was carried out in Bogota that had been pioneered in France or Germany or, or this country. Um, let me just uh, point to one or two themes for development of research. I was very interested by the short discussion of the history of oral contraception which came up which I, I think has been understated elsewhere and there's somebody who likes to think of himself as a general historian a general practitioner perhaps I, I see this as an extremely interesting subject for somebody who also thinks of him or herself as a general practitioner in the discipline for it unites religious history with gender history, the history of international and national voluntary agencies, political history, indeed a very under-explored area, the history of domestic service. In Colombia, in the, at, right at the end of the 1960s and in the early 1970s, the diffusion of contraception information um, took 
interesting, to me, interesting forms. They may seem self-evident, um, retrospectively. Not only was uh, the possibility of oral contraception featuring on the front pages of liberal newspapers, always a nice opportunity for stirring up an old anti-clerical versus clerical conflict. Very delicious if you're a certain kind of anti-clerical. But not only was that happening, but the first generations of women professional nurses and doctors were spreading information um, from their um, from the uh, National University to fellow women professionals, of course, and their sisters. And uh, we soon see the employers of domestic servants uh, informing their employees, women, in some cases barely more than girl, employees about the merits as they saw them of oral contraception. Many of these girls having uh, something of a cliche or a stereotype, um, having been victims of early childbirth, um, having had children very young in rural areas uh, and having been kicked out of their homes. There is, I think, a very interesting history here that should be written up by taking perhaps two countries, one which, uh, where the International Planned Parenthood Federation found cooperation at various levels, uh, major, most important NGO involved, with national and local authorities, um, another where it didn't, and the consequences. I failed to mention but it, this, uh, this topic also involves historical demography, which, may, which is so obvious that I haven't written it down. I'd also like to see the history of the media brought out, perhaps more in the writings on, on the history of healthcare. How far were the pulpit, always a medium, and the plaza used to diffuse health information? Certainly, um, before radio and the press, you see notices at intervals put up by local government in plazas to inform uh, the local illiterate who might in turn inform the local, local illiterates. Uh, radio, what radio coverage uh, was there of? Uh, what radio health advice was there in the 1940s? Difficult to handle because... Um, radio archives on radio I think are generally weak in Latin America but uh, there may be exceptions and then television um, President Belisario Betancourt of Colombia mentioned in the book one thing that he did was go on to television during an immunisation campaign in the early 70s he was a very good television performer which of course helped with the health minister and the health minister who was a medic and he spoke of the importance of immunizing children. And the health minister immunized his own daughter. One feels a little sorry for her, but 
as she performs an important role in front of the viewers. And then, of course, the new social media. Are they promoting knowledge about healthcare in interesting and important ways? I worry that if they'd been around at the time of AIDS, they might have been wor uh, promoting hysteria. But that's uh, counterfactual, and I should not be uh, wasting our time with it. So, uh, I, those are my major points. I thought you were very generous to, to, to pre-revolutionary Cuba. I don't, uh, the World Bank is very report of 1954, well, I think it was, writing about, um, uh, writing about the water, sanitary and infrastructure of Santiago to Cuba, uh, uh, would seem revolutionary by comparison. Um, I was very, I enjoyed the occasional mentions of health issues in, visual, in the visual arts and literature and but if, everything, if you did everything I wanted you to enlarge on, I'd, I'd, you'd have to have written another 150 pages. I, I did note in passing that uh, you mentioned the rich flocking to Miami in uh, 2010 to... Uh, they were already flocking to the Canal Zone in 1920. Uh, flocking, perhaps is overstating it, but from Colombia, the beginnings of aviation there were opportunities to, uh, uh, to go to the canal zone. Uh, and they were already uh, presidential families that took rescuers on transatlantic liners on the way to France, but I'm sure you know that. Not everything in the audience probably does. So those are a few diverse random scatters um, thoughts. So, thank you, I enjoyed the book very much. I think everybody in the audience should go uh, and buy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, please join me in thanking uh, our two speakers.